You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really, I'm really glad that you're here. And I, I don't know if you realize that it's raining out there. And, uh, and you're like, oh, it's, it's just rain. And, and I'm, tell, I'm here to tell you, it's not just rain, it's tropical rain. That's the most terrifying type of rain there is. And I don't know if you've ever bought a bag of Skittles and you didn't get regular Skittles, you got tropical Skittles. It's terrifying. And that's what you just braved. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. And... Uh, who knew that could work? Anyway, so a couple of things I need to tell you as we get started. Uh, it was my wife's birthday on Wednesday, so that's a, big, that's a big thing, big thing at our house. So we had a great time celebrating her pretty much all week. Uh, her friends threw her a surprise party yesterday, which was a lot of fun. And uh, we, now, so I bought my wife flowers and a few other things uh, on, on her birthday, and got her a couple of cards and all that, which my kids were reminding me, like, remember what you did last year? It was like a cautionary tale. And so I'm like, I remember what I did last year. You don't remember what I did last year, so I'm going to tell you what I did last year because that's all going to make sense. So I bought my wife flowers as I normally do on her birthday, and then I got her a couple of gifts, which I normally do on her birthday. But I had forgotten to buy a card last year. So on my way home from church, I stopped at Walgreens, and I didn't have a lot of time because I didn't want my wife to know, like, why, why were you, why did it take you 45 minutes to get home from church? And because uh, we usually drive separately. Anyway, so I stopped at Walgreens really quick to pick out two cards, one from me and one from the kids because they always want the, their cards, uh, their card to be separate. So I found a card and I realized I had to go. I just grabbed another card and I headed out. And so... Now, when I was driving home, I'm like, what? I, don't even, I wasn't even sure exactly what I picked. And it was a card with this plastic hot dog on the front. And when you open the card, it has 10 different phrases that are all hot dog puns about your birthday, like you're the worst, nice to meet you, party your buns off. And I was like, I couldn't believe my luck. This is hilarious. So anyway... I get home and I'm showing the girls, uh, my, 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 Mia and Livy, and I'm like, hey, I need you to sign the card for your mom. And they, op they are so upset with me. And uh, they're like, what did you do? Well, so much so they refused to sign. And, and I'm like, there's no time. Sign the card. Well, they totally refused. And uh, anyway, my son thought, like, dad, this is your best. This is your best work. And, and my girls were like, Dad, you always do this. I'm like, do what? They're like, remember lad, the year before you got mom a first communion card for her birthday? <laughs> now, I will say this. That is a thing I do. I never get the right card for your birthday. And I've gotten my wife first communion cards for her birthday, bar mitzvah, sorry for your loss. I mean, I've gotten her a tons of different cards because if you, listen, how many birthday cards have you gotten in your life? And it's like, you know, it always has like the typical stuff. You're the greatest person ever. But when it's like, you know, if you got a card that says happy first communion and then in Sharpie, it's scratched out first communion and it's written birthday, you'll never forget that card. And, uh, you know, anyway, so, and once again, so I, I, I tend to do that my 
two girls don't like the fact that I do that. And so, but part of the reason I do it is because I just have a particular problem with the card industry. I believe all cards should be blank on the inside. Um, and you just write whatever you want to write. Because the problem is like, and you do this, you'll notice this, like every time you go for a card, like does this exactly, why is it that some person who's never met me or my wife doesn't exactly know what to say, the thing that I wanna say? And then if you get something that's not quite right, uh, you know, even though we've had many struggles, it's like, we're doing okay now. It's like, what, what you think we're having problems? And it's like now a card is causing problems. So anyway, it creates situation. And, but you know, there's all these cards like, from the first moment I saw you, I knew we'd be together forever. Like, give me a break. Um, the first time I met my wife, I was so taken by how pretty was she was, all I did was lie to her to impress her. And then no matter how many cards I look at, I've never found one to address the specificities of our first meeting. And so anyway, so Livy makes her own card, but because she didn't want to make, seem cheap, she paper clipped a dollar to it. So she didn't want her mom to think that she just made her own card because she was trying to be cheap. And then Mia wrote something really nice. Xander just signed his name to the hot dog card. He's like, Dad, this is your best work ever. And, uh, and so now, here's my, here's my point. Is that family, and you know this, this is like the understatement of what I say today, right? Uh, is that family is complicated. And, and the reality is, is that it's supposed to be. Because family is the place where God changes you. It's the place where God develops you. It's the place where uh, God prepares you for life. And there's, it's no mistake that that's one of the reasons why there's four big metaphors that God uses for the church. And one of the metaphors that he used is the idea of family. And so because we're in relationship with each other, we have the same heavenly father who's working in us. He's working on us. He's working through us and he's changing us. And when we think about change, we usually think about stuff that we have to do or stuff that we're doing that we have to stop doing. But maybe that's part of it. But there's another part of change that's really important too. And this is the part where we change our thinking, where you come to know Jesus and, you know, lots of things change in your life. And, and lots of things change about what you think, right? There was a certain way that you did relationships before you came to know Jesus and then you came to know him. You're like, I got to do that differently. You thought about people a certain way. Now you think about people differently. You thought about your future a certain way. Now you think about your future differently. But one of the things that changes most fundamentally is your change about what you think about God. That changes. And when you start, when that change, like you get that down into your bones, that this idea, because at four, before you became a Christian or before you started pursuing God in any way, you, you had these thoughts, man, I think God's mad at me. I think God is just kind of waiting for me to mess up, to drop the hammer. And then you come to know Jesus. You find out that God is love and that Jesus died for me, that before I even was trying to walk with God, that he had given his life for me. You realize this idea that God is for you and that he's working things out and standing with you even in painful moments. Now, here's why I tell you all of this, because we've been in a series now for the last several weeks in the book of Hebrews, which as I've mentioned, is probably the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. And it's written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a difficult time that are asking this question. If God loves me, why is life so hard? 
And the answer to that question is a very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement for these people to do the one thing that's going to help when you're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And the, the writer of Hebrews is going to give us now another picture of Jesus. And one of the things, if you haven't been with us, one of the things that he's been doing is just talking about how Jesus is greater than, than really everything. And he, he's been walking through everything that in Judaism is considered to be kind of the pinnacle of worship and of, of godliness. And he's showing that Jesus is greater. And now he's, gonna, he's talking about the priesthood, the high priest. And he's going to talk to us about a very mysterious character in the Hebrew scriptures whose name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a guy that is only mentioned twice in the Bible besides in the book of Hebrews. His story is found in Genesis 14. And then that's it. Then about a thousand years later, he's mentioned kind of as in this little passing blurb in a psalm. And then he shows up as uh, the center of conversation now in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and the whole idea is that, that he, he wants to show us, right? That the writer of Hebrews wants to show us that Jesus is very different than anyone else you've ever met. He's way more than a religious figure or an icon. In fact, Christianity is very different than any other faith system because every religious system on this planet is man trying to reach God by doing various works. Christianity, on the other hand, is God trying to reach you by what God has already done. And that's the thing that we're going to look at, as mysterious as it is uh, at this very point. And show us this, that God is trying to reach you, and here's the reason, because God is for you. That he's working on your behalf, that he's working in your life. And here's the cool thing, he's working even if you don't see it. He's working even if you don't realize it. He's working even if you kind of doubt it. It's still true. And we're going to see how true that is, that he's working, that he's constantly working. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you have your notes, you can grab them. If you look on the screen, if you have the Calvary app, all that. If you have your Bible, even better. We're going to start in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 1. It's a little bit of a complicated passage, so bear with me. We're going to explain it all. But here's what it says. For this Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, meaning King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though uh, they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mere mortals receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And if you pause there and give me your attention, and if you've read that with me, and you're just like, what in the world did I just read? Worry not, we're going to explain it, and it will make sense. 
But the first point that I want to make to you, if you're a note taker, and that is that Jesus is showing up through the people of God. Now, this is a really deep cut. And because Melchizedek, as I mentioned, appears in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and here, and that's about it. And if you were here last week, one of the things that I mentioned in our text last time, we talked about how Abraham had gone, and this is in uh, Genesis chapters 13 and 14, his nephew Lot had been taken captive, and he put together this makeshift army of 317 people that worked for him, and he went into battle and defeated these five kings and got his nephew Lot back. Now, once that was over and he was returning home, this mysterious character named Melchizedek appears. And, he, and, and the writer tells us in the Genesis account that he shows up, Melchizedek, with bread and wine. Now, once again, he's gonna, he wants to give us some clues as to who this person is. So I want you to follow this carefully because he's trying to give us some clues as to who it is. He carries bread and wine, obviously the elements of communion. It also says, according to verse 1, that he was the king of Salem. And you'll see there in verse 2 that Salem means peace. You, you don't really, like, where in the world is Salem? Is that where the witch trials took place in Massachusetts? Not the same place. But what he, you go, that, that, word, that city, Salem, goes by another name today, which is Jerusalem. And so, and that is what, what it means. It's a city of peace. So he's the king of Jerusalem. And by the way, Melchizedek is not really a proper name. It's a title. And it is two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Tesedkenu, which means righteousness. And you see that in, uh, there in verse uh, 2, where it says that it's translated king of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he's carrying out bread and wine to meet Abraham. And who in the world could this possibly be? Now, many Bible scholars have noted that in the Old Testament, there are these moments where God appears in human form. And they are called, the, the theological term is theophanies. And that is that it's God appearing in human flesh before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so you see that, and if you're reading through the Old Testament, there's a character who shows up named the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord. Now, normal angels, they try to, people try to worship them like, hey, can't do that, only worship God. The angel of the Lord shows up and people bow down and worship him and he's okay with that. And so, and it's the idea that the angel of the Lord is this personification of God. And one of the places where scholars agree that is a theophany is in the person of Melchizedek, that this could be a appearance of Jesus before his incarnation in, when he was born in Bethlehem. Now, it doesn't have to be the case. It could just be that he kind of looks a lot like Jesus and that works too. But I personally believe that it is a, an appearance of Jesus meeting Abraham because there's this one conversation that Jesus has where Jesus kind of tips his hand as to uh, that this might be him. And it's in John chapter eight, you'll see it. He says, your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and yet you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, Melchizedek shows up to meet Abraham and blessed him. Now, let me just tell you what happens in Christian culture that we do. We kind of take words and we make them mean what they just become, come to mean. So when it says that he blessed Abraham, that doesn't mean that 
Um, man, he was just such a cool guy to hang out with, and we just, we sung some Christian songs. Man, that guy's such a blessing. That's not what that means. The, 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 the Greek word there is um, eulogio, where we get our English word eulogy, which it means a good word. And that's what is being spoken, that Melchizedek comes and speaks a blessing, speaks a good word over Abraham's life. Now, we can't be sure what the blessing was, but there are some clues. Remember, Abraham had just saved his nephew Lot, who he treated like a son. Right after that encounter, he meets Melchizedek, and then in Genesis 15, God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Like, hey, you don't have to worry about, I know you might be thinking about these other kings that might want retribution, but I've got you. And it's almost like Abraham doesn't even acknowledge the thing that God says. The only thing that he's, the next verse, he just says, you know, I don't have any kids. You know that I go childless and there's this guy named Eliezer who lives all the way, he used to live in Damascus before he came to work for me. That's the guy that's going to inherit everything that I have. And, but you promised that I would have kids. And so the, the writer of Hebrews in this section, he mentions how priests come from the tribe of Levi, collected tithes from Israel as part of their worship. And that Abraham then gave the tithe, the tenth part of all, to Melchizedek. And so because he did that, all of Abraham's descendants essentially tithed to Melchizedek because they were all still in Abraham's loins, part of his DNA when, they, when that took place. So it could be that the thing that Melchizedek was giving a blessing to Abraham about was his deepest desire and concern, which was his legacy of having a child and passing on all these, the blessings of God to the next generation. And my point is this, that God has this way of speaking to us when we need it most, if we will avail ourselves to God speaking. Because sometimes we miss it. We're running so fast, we don't pause to ask the questions we need to ask. And we end up on the wrong side of the thing that we're trying to do. And it, it, it kind of looks like this. When my wife and I were first married, the first time we kind of went out of town as a married couple um, was we went to Orlando on, va on vacation. And it was, it was around the time, so this is around 1998. And um, so websites were popping up. And you could, you could book rooms online for individual hotels but they, they didn't have any pictures yet. So this is like, I mean, this is like right after the invention of electricity, all right? So this is a while ago. And so I had a friend that had just come back from vacation and he booked a hotel online and it was awesome. And I'm like, dude, that's great. I'm gonna do that too. Now, I never asked him where he booked. I never asked him where he went. I never asked him what he paid. I just heard if you book a hotel room online, it'll be great. So I go online and I'm looking for a hotel in Orlando and I find a hotel, a Howard Johnson, for $29 a night. I'm thinking like, this is fantastic. They have no idea how cheap this is. They're, they're, they're totally out of touch with, anyway. So I book the hotel. Now, I know this is hard to believe, but back in 1998, Howard Johnson was still a reputable brand. Uh, so, we, we, so the first time we saw the hotel was when we actually drove onto the property. And we did drive onto the property, and it looked like something out of the third world had landed 15 miles from the Magic Kingdom. And it was, I mean, 
it was the worst hotel I've ever stayed in in my life, and that includes other countries I've been to on missions trips. Um, there, so, you know, like, if you're, if you're old enough to remember this, you know, remember the old Tom and Jerry cartoons where there was, like, that, that opening in the wall where the mice would come in and out? And it, it looked like there was, like, those, like, perfect construction. It was open. Anyway, there was that. Except it didn't look like that perfect construction. It looked like the, the rats had gnawed their way through because apparently these were, like, nuclear rats or something. And so, anyway, my wife was so, she couldn't sleep because she thought she was going to get eaten by rats in the middle of the night. And I'm not even saying she was wrong. I'm just, it didn't happen, but it, I'm not saying, anyway. So, uh, which she wouldn't have been able to sleep anyway because it turns out that that hotel was right next to these train tracks and trains passed every 15 minutes, morning, noon, and night. And so the second night that we're there, someone's car, someone gets into a car accident and hits the transformer right in front of the hotel and blew out the power in the hotel. So now there's no power, there's no AC, there's no TV, there's no light, there's no fans, nothing. And it's like a thousand degrees. And the worst part is, is that we're, we're just laying there and um, we hear music and we hear like what sounds like a party. And we open the door, and this is one of those hotels. I guess it's a motel, right? If a hotel, it opens into a hallway. It's a motel if you open out into the elements. I think that's what it is. Okay, so we open the motel, and across the street, across from the train tracks, there's a hotel, and they, they're having a party. And they have lights, and they have power, and joy and a whole bunch of other things over there. And, 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 and listen, this, and, 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 it's, and, and my wife is like, you know, what, did you ask, so who do you know that stayed at this hotel? Like, well, well, no, and I just heard that this guy booked online and she's like, what hotel? I'm like, yeah, that'd be a good question to ask. And how much did they pay? That's a good question to ask. And where did they go? Good question to ask also. And this is what happens, right? God, listen, always comes to meet us and invites us to commune with him. But we've got to listen. Or here's what we end up. We end up watching the good things that God wants to do from the other side of the tracks. And we always end up in the dark if we don't seek what God is asking us to do. So that's the first part. The first thing that we learn about Melchizedek, which is who he is and how he shows up. But then the second part, and this is where he really drills down in verse 11. He says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for, for under it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. For he to whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I know a complicated passage, but we're going to explain it. The second thing is this, is that Jesus is showing up through how he transforms you. Now, it's a complex passage, but he, the, the, the writer is trying to make one point. And that is, if the Levitical line of priests, that is the priesthood that oversaw the tabernacle and the temple, they oversaw worship and sacrifices, if that were really enough, and, and that the, what Israel had experienced throughout their history, if that was enough, then there would be no need for God to lay these breadcrumbs and talk about another type of a priest. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this, that the high priest was the representative of uh, the Jews to God and the representatives of God to the people. Because in ancient times, the priests were not just religious figures. I mean, the priests were the teachers of Israel. They were the worship leaders. They were the social workers that were feeding people. They were the counselors that were helping families settle disputes. They were the nurse practitioners that were checking in on the sick and assisting them. They were offering sacrifices to make people right with God. And they were teaching God's people to help them to live in a way that honored the God that they followed. They were the spiritual leaders in Israel. When kings had questions about what to do, they inquired of the priests, which made them presidential advisors. But there's something powerful here that I want to unpack. And um, it's going to take me a minute to explain, but it'll come together in a second. So what I have to explain is how murders were handled. And I know it's kind of a strange topic, but how murders were handled in ancient Israel. In the ancient world, when a person was killed, it didn't matter if it was intentional or unintentional, there was retribution for that killing. There would be a person in that family who, let's just say someone's brother was killed. The, they, the, that person's brother was called the avenger of blood. And that means that he would hunt down, the avenger of blood would hunt down the person who killed his brother and kill them. But there was a problem. And that is, what if it's accidental? What if you and your buddy are out chopping wood and as you slip, you know, you, you swing your ax back, the ax head comes off the handle, it hits your buddy square in the head and just kills him cold. And that's, obviously that's not murder, that's manslaughter. But in the ancient world, that didn't matter. If you killed someone intentionally or unintentionally, the avenger of blood would come. Now, God establishes the nation of Israel. And he doesn't abolish capital punishment. Instead, what he does is he puts parameters around it. And what would happen is, is that someone who was murdered in Israel, now the, the person that was the suspect would be taken to a group of six cities that were located all throughout the nation of Israel that were called cities of refuge. And the suspect could run there for safety and they could not be killed by the avenger of blood. They were safe within the confines of that city until the trial took place in the city where the death happened. Now, this is all back in Numbers 35 and here's what it says. It says, there will be places of refuge from the avenger, that is the avenger of blood, so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. So the trial would take place and witnesses would be called and they would all, uh, witnesses would be cross-examined. By the way, if you do not understand the Bible, you will never understand the United States Constitution and you will never understand the United States criminal justice system because all of it is based on the Old Testament law. Okay, so... Let's say a person was found guilty. They, it turns out that they really were guilty of murder. Then that person would be turned over to the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood would, uh, they would pay for the crime by, uh, with their, their life, right? You would, this is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth deal. 
if they were found innocent of the murder, or more specifically, they were found that, hey, this was an accident. This was not uh, premeditated. They were not trying to kill the person. The person would, would then, the, the person who was the suspect, was not guilty of first-degree murder, would be welcome to live in the city of refuge for their, the rest of their life under the, uh, under the protection of the people of God from the avenger of blood. So the avenger of God couldn't just bust in there. That's not the way it worked. Now, there's an interesting note that's of particular importance to us. And this is the thing that he's getting at. This is what he says in Numbers 35 in verse 28. He says, the accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may they return to their own property. So this is the interesting note that, that's fascinating for us. When the high priest died, the person who was found not guilty of first-degree murder was able to leave the city of refuge and go back to their property, their family, and their lives. Why? Because according to the ancient rabbis, when the high priest died, the sin was paid for and the person was free. Now, there's a passage that we covered last week, and I didn't have time to get into all this, which is why I'm bringing it up now. There's this little thing that's very important in uh, Hebrews 6, which says here, he says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, it, it's so deep that when Jesus died, he's saying that every sin that we were guilty of was paid for. Most of us recognize that. He's explaining it in the Jewish context, that Every sin was paid for, but because he is a priest who lives forever, he died and then came back to life, now we can find our refuge in him. And here's what that means, that you don't have to spend your entire life trying to pay the price for your own sins and mistakes. And I know that you might think, well, well, I'm a Christian. I don't think that. I know Jesus paid the price. And yet so many Christians find themselves beating themselves up for things that they've done. You know that you can own your past without letting your past own you that you don't have to be who you used to be, that you can be something brand new based on who God is transforming you into, that you and I are not a pile of our past failures and your past is not a prologue to what's gonna happen in the future. And the moment that you realize that, that you can take refuge in the person of Jesus and find your freedom in him, your life is going to change. That's why the end of this passage is that something better was ushered in by which we might draw near to God. So one, one morning, I come dragging into the office here at Calvary because I had only slept for about an hour and a half that whole night because my son, Xander, my son Xander now is 11, but he was about three or four at the time. Uh, he woke me up and needed me. And when Xander was younger, he would always wake me up. And so I've, I've never had to set an alarm for most of my life uh, it, when I've had kids, but at least when Xander was born, because whenever Xander would wake up in the morning, um, which was usually sometime between 5.45 and 6 a.m., seven days a week for about the first nine years of his life, he would find me and just, dad, dad, yeah, hey, I'm awake. And so that would even happen in the middle of the night. So one night I go to sleep at about 11.30, and just after midnight, Xander wakes me up because he's cold and he wants to sleep next to me. So Xander gets in bed with me and falls asleep. A few minutes later, I get up and I go and lay on the couch. And right as I'm, so now it takes me like an hour to, um, to fall asleep. Right as I'm about to fall asleep, my son Xander appears. And he's like, Dad, where did you go? 
And I'm like, oh, I just came out here. He's like, all right, well, can you make some room? And uh, so now I got to make some room on the couch, which is an even smaller situation than it was in bed. So I put him on the couch next to me. He falls asleep. I put the covers on him. I go back to bed. Now, I can't sleep, so I just start watching something on Netflix. About an hour later, Xander shows up again and just walks by. He's like, hey, Dad, it's okay. I just have to go to the bathroom. And so then he takes his bathroom break, and when he's leaving, he climbs back into bed with me. So now, it's, you know, close to 4 a.m. I get out of bed. I go back onto the couch and finish whatever I'm watching, and I finally fall asleep at about 5.20. My alarm goes off at 6 a.m., and I walk into the bedroom, and much to my, I don't even know what it is, just frustration, my son is sawing logs and doesn't have a care in the world. So that next night, I'm putting Xander to bed. And he's like, Dad, um, I'm really sorry that I kept you up last night. I'm never going to do that again. And I'm like, buddy, you're my son. If you need me, you come find me, and I'll always be there. And he got so happy. He's like, oh, okay, well then dad, I guess we'll be talking in a little while. And uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. And so now, but here's my point. By this, we can draw near to God because we can take refuge in him. Do you realize that that's the kind of access that you have to God? That sometimes we come to him or we hesitate coming to him. I don't know. I mean, he's not going to be frustrated. He's going to be, no, no, no. We have the kind of access to God that we have that kind of refuge that we can find him in any moment. And it's in this relationship by drawing near to him that we can change. Well, verse 19, he goes on and he says this. Or I'm sorry, verse 20. He says, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was ho holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, and does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Last thing I want to tell you, and that is that number three in your outline, and that is that Jesus is showing up through his constant care. Now, I want you to think about something, and that is when people think about you, what do they think of? Now, and, and once again, it could be that you've had this moment in your life where someone just gives you a present for kind of no good reason, and you're like, well, what is this for? Like, I don't know. I just saw it, and I thought of you, and I wanted to get it for you. And, and here's the thing. Um, whatever it is, if you think that it's in, that it's pretty close to the things that you're passionate about, the things that you value, the things that you're into, you'll think that their level of knowing you is, is, is pretty high, right? That's just kind of how we see it. So a while back, I get a package here at Calvary, and it is a, this box, 
and I open it up, and it is a subscription box to Oreos. Now, apparently this is a thing. I didn't know if you know it was a thing, but someone got me a three-month subscription to Oreo. And uh, anyway, you should think about getting this for someone you love for Christmas that, that loves Oreos because every month you got an exclusive package of Oreos, which had new flavors, new limited edition shapes, or whether it's a, some kind of movie theme or uh, whatever, it, you know, maybe it's a holiday, it had all that stuff. And um, it was, it, it had all kinds of, and so every month I'd get this box, and I would totally forget about it. And then I, the thing would show up and then I'm like, dude. And so anyway, the Calvary staff was so happy every time that box showed up because I would make friends. And so everybody was just going crazy watch, with these Oreos. And then they have like these limited edition things. Anyway, it was great. So one time, then another time uh, I get a box and I open it up and there's like 200 little packs of nerds. Now, let me tell you something about nerds, which is just kind of a deep cut because I never talk about nerds. I love nerds. Uh, that is the one candy that is like kryptonite to me. Like I can say no to a lot of things, but there is just something. But the little box of nerds, you open it up and just pop the whole thing. There is like this sugar rush where, I mean, you can like run for probably about half a block till you get winded and uh, with the sugar that you're getting hit with. Anyway, but I, I opened it up and I'm like, man, somebody really knows me. Now, if you're thinking about getting me a box this year, I'm really into Bitcoin. So there's the... <laughs> Uh, and for those of you that don't have a sense of humor, that was a joke. And uh, anyway, but my point is this. Someone looks at your life and they see certain themes. And like, oh, you, you're into that. You live for this. I want you to see what it says about Jesus, that what he lives for. It says that he lives to intercede for us. But somehow that becomes the defining action of Jesus' life is his care for us and his decision and desire to intercede on our behalf. What that means is that Jesus is praying for you. And that when you and I pray, God has this ability to kind of mix the prayer. I, if you've been around Calvary, you know that I, I call this the prayer remix, where we pray and then Jesus kind of hears that, no, that's not really what you want. You want this other thing. And, and we, we don't now... This isn't exactly how it works, but it's kind of how I think about it. Um, it. It says this in Romans 8. This will explain it better. But it says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The idea is you and I are trying to figure out God's will. Jesus knows what God's will is. And when we ask for something that isn't God's will, he remixes that prayer into something that is. Because listen, when you believe that God is for you. You recognize that God wants to answer your prayer. In fact, he promises to answer if we will pray according to God's will. And it, because God is for you, it wouldn't be very loving of our heavenly father to give us something less than what we need because we weren't wise enough to ask for what's best. So listen, it's never God holding out on you. It's always God looking out for you and drawing you closer. Now, when I was in college, getting my theology degree, there was a whole bunch of books we had to read for each class. And then there was this other list of books that we were given at orientation that's like, these books aren't part of any class, but you have to read all of them and write an essay on all of them before you graduate. One of them was a book by a guy named A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian. Um, and he wrote this book that was called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he says this, he makes a statement in the first chapter that has oh, stuck with me now for 
25 years since reading it. But he says this in chapter 1. He says, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, let me say that again for those of you that went to public school. Uh, <laughs> like me. That what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why is that? Because everything else in your life will emerge from your answer to that question. That belief, what you think about when you think about God, is at the root of how you treat people. If you're unloving, unkind, and manipulative, what you think about when you think about God is at the root of that. The way that you parent your kids, the root of that is what you think about when you think about God. How you spend money, how you plan for the future is all rooted in what you think about when you think about God. And if you want your life to change, you've got to believe things about God that are true. Because the things that we believe about God that aren't true are hurting us deeply. You see, you and I have a limited perspective and we, can see, we cannot see beyond our own experiences and our own wisdom. And there are questions that we will not get the answer to on this side of eternity. But we have to learn how to trust God's heart even when we don't understand his ways. I remember when my daughter Mia was two or three years old and I was in the kitchen cooking and she asked me for a knife. The knife that was right next to me and she's like, she's reaching for it. And I said, no. And she cried and she cried because I was an unloving father not giving her the thing that she desired. But once again, when you have a little bit of age and wisdom and experience and perspective, you realize that saying no was the most loving thing I could do. And now with some age and wisdom and perspective and experience on, on, on her part, she realizes the same thing, that not just that I love my kids more than anything and would move heaven and earth for them, but if we are willing to do that, what Jesus said was, if you're willing to do good for your kids, how much more will your heavenly father seek to do for you because the moment that you really start believing I mean down to your bones that God is good that he does good and that he is for you your life will not be the same let's pray together and Lord we want to thank you for that reality that you are good and that you do good that if you are for us no one can be against us and we pray that you would continue working in us, through us, because everything that you're doing is for us. So Lord, help us in that regard. Help us that when what we think about when we think about you are things that are right and things that are true, that it might transform us. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. All right. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.